Well, good morning. Anybody here ever gotten to a moment in your life and you're like, hey, this area or this um, space or this, this is an opportunity. There's something I want to grow in. There's something new I want to learn. Anyone try to learn something new? Yeah. Like inevitably, um, when you decided that you wanted to grow in something or learn something you didn't already know or to be able to do something you couldn't already do, I'm guessing you like me probably took one first step. The first step was you probably go, I need some help. Right. So whether it's looking at something online, whether it's um, finding someone who's good at it, whether you it's a coach, a teacher, you said, hey, I can't do this on my own. A coach has a couple purposes right in your life. When you think back over your life, think about somebody who helped you accomplish something or become something or do something that you wouldn't have been able to do on your own. Anybody come to mind in your life? Because I'm guessing as you look back over your life, you see these people and across, regardless of whatever we're talking about, what you chose to pursue, what you wanted to grow in, what skill you wanted to learn, what sports you wanted to play, what instrument you wanted to play. Those coaches probably did three things well. Those three things, I'm guessing if your coach was anything like my coach or teacher or anything like my teacher, they encouraged, right? Who wants a coach who does nothing but belittle you and berate you, Right? I want to know that it's my effort, I'm doing something right. But a coach isn't going to just, just, isn't going to always just pat you on the back and go, that's awesome, that's awesome, you're amazing, you're incredible. A coach is going to challenge you. A coach is going to push you. A coach is going to say, hey, yeah, that's good, but it can get better. Keep working. And not just that, he's going to motivate you. He's going to motivate you to pursue something that can't be accomplished today. Right, an end goal, an end destination, something that's significant, something that you are taking little steps each and every day to get to so that you can get there. I don't know what coaches you've had growing up, what teachers you've had in your life that have helped you in those spaces, but I'm guessing you probably recognize some of these faces. These are some pretty famous coaches um, are in the history of sports. And um, yes, it's not an accident. In order to play KU Alabama fans, that is Bear Bryant. Um, I did not put a Georgia coach up. I put an Alabama coach. And someone else pointed out for the first service, I also put a Tennessee coach up there. So I'm doing my best to bridge, bridge the differences we have. Um, the, these, are all, these are all coaches who have accomplished significant things, right? You don't get recognized as a coach unless you do one thing. And what's that? Win, right? But everyone knows that a coach doesn't just win by having more points at the end of the game each and every game. The coach does that consistently because of what he's doing with his players. So I'm guessing they're doing the three things we just mentioned, right? They're encouraging, they're challenging, they're motivating. And what else is true of good coach is that when players leave playing under them, they are different than when they came. They are better than when they came. And the mark of a really great coach is to take somebody that everybody didn't think was awesome and turn them into somebody really awesome, right? Well, this morning, and the reason I start there is because as we continue our study of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to switch into coach mode. You see, you could say the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians could be summarized by the celebration of faithfulness. He's celebrating. He's encouraging. He's saying, hey, this is awesome. What you've, what you've received, how you're working out your faith, how you're sharing your faith, how you're growing in your faith, it's awesome. The reports I'm hearing from Timothy, who came back telling us about what's going on in the church there, is amazing. But as he gets to chapter 4, as he gets to chapter 4, 
he's going to say something. He's shifting and he's going to say, hey, while I'm celebrating that, I'm as a coach, not content for you to just stay there. I'm going to challenge you, push you, encourage you and motivate you to continue working out your faith in Jesus. I want you to continue to unpack what you've received. So let's start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, we're going to stop and we're going to spend a lot of time on these two verses because I think these two verses are going to set up the framework in which to help us understand the rest of this chapter and really the rest of this letter that Paul is writing. He starts and he says, we ask and we urge you, essentially encourage you. That term is used throughout this book as he's encouraging, he's urging, he's begging, he's pleading. He's wanting them to listen. He's wanting them to follow the direction that not he gave, but God has given through Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And he's not just urging and challenging. He's, he's saying, I want you to keep doing what you are already doing, right? As a coach, right, you might be doing these three things, right, but you need to change this fourth thing. But one of a coach's job is to say, hey, keep doing the first three things and add the fourth thing. It's going to be essential for you to hit the ball, to kick the ball, to run, to shoot, to do whatever you're trying to do in the game. So he says, hey, keep doing what you're already doing. And then he says this. Part of his encouragement is to saying, hey, there's a finish line. There's a place I'm encouraging you to get to. In 1996, you might remember this little thing called the Olympics came to Atlanta. Um, I don't know if you attended any of the, the events, but we went down to the cycling time trials, which were held on the streets. So it was free. You just went and hung out in the streets and they would ride by, by you on these bikes. And we go on Ponce de Leon Avenue. And as this the cyclists would come around this corner. Now, they're not racing each other. Like it's not a pack. It's a time trial. So the cyclist knows nothing about where he stands or how close he might be or how fast he needs to go or if he should slow down or can he should push harder, except for the fact that every cyclist had a support car. Now, would you like to be the cyclist or the driver of the support car? Because <laughs> on this last, last climb, they would round this corner and this, this support car wouldn't just be there and be like, hey, just let it you know, we're behind you. The support car had somebody hanging out the window with a megaphone. And it's the Olympics, right? It's all these different countries, all these different languages. I had no idea what they're saying, right? But you caught the gist of what they're saying. They're saying, keep going. You got this. You can do this. They're giving them information. They're telling them where they stand. They're telling them how close they are. They're telling them how hard to go, how hard to push, when to pull back. They're encouraging. So as Paul comes in this section, he's saying, hey, I'm behind you. I'm in the support car. I'm urging you. I'm begging you to do what? He says, I want you to walk. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second. Haven't we gotten past walking? Like walking is really where we're going to start? But I love this. Throughout the New Testament, and even and honestly, throughout this letter, three times in this letter, Paul encourages them to continue walking, to keep walking. Here in chapter 2, it says, We exhort each of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then and here we just read in 4.1, it says, I want you but what you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. And then later in this chapter, in verse 12, it's going to say, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Don't you love that there's not this like constant invitation to race to the finish line? 
our, our walk with Jesus is a walk. Paul's saying, hey, I want you to continue walking, to keep taking one step after another. Because guess what? It's going to get you somewhere. It's taking us somewhere. You see, communicating movement and action, so we don't just take in theological knowledge, but we put it into practice. It's the whole point of the second half of this letter. He's saying, hey, what you've received, what you know about the gospel actually has implications for how you're going to live your life. And it's not passive, it's active. You take what you know and it should make your life look differently. That's what he's encouraging them to walk into. John Stott in his commentary writes this about the church in Thessalonica. And I love this. It says, within a few weeks or months, Paul had taught the young Thessalonian converts not only the essence of the good news, but also the essence of the good life. Not only about faith in Jesus, but about the necessity of good works by which saving faith is authenticated and without which it is dead. Paul came and he said, hey, the gospel is here. Jesus died for you. Faith in him is all you need. And then he said, and as a result, that faith, when it's alive, is going to look like this. It's going to impact the different areas of your life. And he's going to get very practical as he moves to the rest of this letter. But if he's challenging, if he's encouraging, what is the greatest motivation that he's putting in front of these readers? What is the motivation that he's putting in front of us? Why we should continue walking? Why we should continue moving? Did you see it? Because it's almost easy to miss, but it's huge. It changes how we're going to look at the rest of this letter. Honestly, it's going to change the way you look at your relationship with Jesus. You might see it at the end of verse 1. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to what? Please God. To please God. Right here, Paul's saying, hey, the greatest motivation for all of the rest of what I'm going to talk to you about is not so that life would be better for you, not that life would be easier for you, but so that God would be pleased with your life. One commentary I read this week said this. It said, pleasing God ought to be the major motive of the Christian life. I sat there looking at that, thinking about that. Like, what do you think about that? Like, what happens in you when you read that? Is it a yes or is it a ugh? Like you, are you drawn in or are you pushed back? You see, let's simplify things for a minute. I think it'd be safe to say for all of us in here who know Jesus, we'd say if you do not please God, it doesn't really matter who else you're pleasing. And vice versa, if you please God, it doesn't really matter who's not pleased with you, Right? So we would say, then yes, pleasing God is probably a pretty major motive for living the Christian life. And we find it referenced all over the New Testament when you look closely. It's almost like one of those things, right? When you, you get a car, and you're like, I didn't know anyone had a green car. And then all of a sudden you look around you and you go, everyone has a green car. <laughs> They're everywhere. Throughout the New Testament, you see this woven throughout, especially Paul's writing, this idea of pleasing God. In verse 2, or chapter 2, it says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Implying that there is a desire and a need to, invitation to please God. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 2 Corinthians 5.9. 
And if we keep going, for Colossians 1.10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And we keep going. Paul says it again in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, verse 8, and verse 10. It says, walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And it wasn't just Paul. It was actually Jesus as well. In John 8, 29, he says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For although I do the things that are pleasing, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So central to Paul's message is, hey, this is a big motivation for why we live out and why we follow Jesus day by day by day. So that way we we will please God. A motive for the Christian life is to live a life that pleases God. Paul said it. Jesus said it. When he was here, he said, part of my mission here is to live a life that is pleasing to God. So step back for a second. Let me ask you two questions. Whom do you live to please? Think about it for a second for you. And don't make it Jesus. Who? Who in your life do you live to please? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent, a teacher, a coach, a sibling, a boss, a friend. Who is it that you live to please? And now let's take it a step further. What is the motivating force for living to please that person. This is where it gets a little sticky, doesn't it? Maybe it's you want them to respect you. Maybe it's out of obligation. Maybe it's out of fear. Maybe it's out of love. Maybe it's wanting to get something. Who you live to please And what motivates that desire to please that person says a lot about our lives, doesn't it? You see, Paul's motivation for living to please God is a response to God's love for him, not a pursuit of earning God's favor. I'm guessing most of the time in our life, when we're trying to please someone, there's an element of fear. There's an element of something that we're trying to measure up. We're trying to earn. We're trying to get something. But that's not what Paul's saying here about his relationship with God. That is not what Paul's saying when he says we should be living a life that pleases God. We should be motivated by pleasing God. You see, Paul is spurring us on to a way of living that is an outworking of a loving desire to please the God who has chosen him and saved him. The very beginning of this letter, right? We gotta remember when we look at these passages, it's not just this little passage. This passage sits within a larger scope of not just God's word, but this letter that he's written. And at the very beginning of his letter, he gives us an indication of this. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, he says, we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. The foundation of everything he's writing and all that he's urging them to continue walking in and growing in and doing more and more of is built on the foundation that God loves you and has chosen you. Therefore, I think there's a very big distinction that needs to be made. When we say, hey, the overarching motivation for living the Christian life is to please God. The reason many of us push back from that and shy away from that and maybe get nervous with that is because of a very close 
association with a different word. So let me ask it differently. Do you live to please God or appease God? Because I'm guessing when the first question went up and or the statement went up about it being a motivating force of the Christian life to please God, what we're immediately think about, especially in the context of church, is appeasing God. No, I don't need, I don't need, to, I don't need to appease God like he, Jesus has done it for me. Right. Therefore, Paul's invitation is not that you and I live in such a way that appeases God, but that you and I get to pick up the joy of living in such a way that pleases God. Because guess what? Jesus has already appeased God on your behalf and mine. So it would be crazy for us to say, live in such a way for you to appease God, for you to earn God's favor, for you to right some wrong. That's been done for you. Therefore, what Paul is pointing to is this earth-shattering reality when it came to the religion of that day, and I would say a religion of today, we do not live our lives to appease God. We are invited to live our lives to please him. So simple, so close, yet I would wager completely different and earth-shattering. You see, the idea of appeasing God is where we get legalistic religion, right? I need to do this, this, this. I cannot do this, 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 this. And therefore, God will be pleased with me. It doesn't work that way. We get to do more and more. We get to keep walking. We get to keep following. We get to keep learning. We get to keep growing. Not so that God will love us more, but so that we can please a God who's loved us the most. In verse 1, I think we see two dynamics that Paul points to that I think are so important when it comes to this idea of pleasing versus appeasing. And check this out. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you, Where? In the Lord Jesus. Paul is going to point to two two ideas that I think can change the way we see our relationship with Jesus. Because if we don't recognize there's two dynamics of our relationship with Jesus, then that's when we get lost and confused in the pleasing versus appeasing. Because he's going to point to in the Lord Jesus. And then later he's going to say that you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing so that you may do so more and more. There's a static element of your relationship with Jesus and a dynamic, dynamic, dynamic aspect of your relationship with Jesus. Let me look at it this way. Let's talk about two categories, union and communion. What Paul points to at the beginning of verse one, when he says, in the Lord Jesus, he's saying, hey, there is something about you as a believer. You are in Christ. Throughout Paul's writings, we've talked about a lot around here. He is absolutely overwhelmed by this idea of you and I are in Christ. As a result of being in Christ, we have standing, fall the standing before God. Now, the flip side, that's our, not the flip side, that union is static. When you and I become a child of Christ, when we come in Christ, guess what? Our relationship doesn't change. There's nothing that we can do that can take the label of child of God off of us again. Therefore, it's static. Now, on the flip side, there is an aspect of our relationship with Jesus that is dynamic. It's communion. Which is why Paul says, keep walking in such a way as to please God. Therefore, we know that there is a way in which you and I can walk that is not pleasing to God. Now, if I walk in a way that is not pleasing to God, does that change the union? Does that change that I'm in Christ? No. But will it change the relationship? Absolutely. If you are married, you know how this works, right? You might be, have a disagreement with your spouse. It doesn't change your union. 
you're still husband and wife, but it absolutely will can change your communion, right? You will not be walking the same or riding the same if you're in the car, right? That's what Paul's pointing to here and incredibly important for us to understand when it comes to living in such a way that pleases God. Guess what? I'm not changing union. Your relationship with God, it's static. But at the same time, your fellowship with him is dynamic. How you walk with Christ, how you walk out his commandments will have an impact on your relationship. Now, here's the difference. Union keeps us from doubting. When we mess up and we go, hey, does God really still love me? Can God forgive me? It says, absolutely. Your union, your relationship is not in jeopardy because of something you've done. Therefore, legalism moves away. But at the same time, communion keeps us pursuing. It says, hey, there is a way in which I can live that as I understand and learn a little bit more about who God is and what he's called me to and how he's called me to live, then guess what? How I live looks different. How I act looks different. How I speak looks different. And guess what? That allows me to go closer and closer to God, which changes my relationship. But in the seasons of life, when you drift and you're not walking with Christ, guess what? Your relationship feels dry. Union hasn't changed communion has. So when Paul is inviting us to please God, he says, don't not forget this. Your relationship with Christ is secure. Your communion with Christ depends on how you are walking. Therefore, walk in such a way that pleases God. So back to the question, do you live to please God or to appease God? Do you live to please or to appease. The difference is small, but the impact is earth shattering. Because guess what? You and I cannot appease God. We're given the joy of pleasing him. Now, if you're keeping track of time, you've probably noticed we've gotten through all of two verses in the first 20 minutes. (laughs) We're going to go quickly and fly over the rest of this chapter because I believe this idea of pleasing God, Paul's going to apply to several different topics throughout the rest of his letter, specifically in the second half of this uh, chapter. He's going to apply it to three areas that I think are very applicable to us. First is holy sexuality. Second is ordinary living. And lastly is expectant hope. There are ways we can live in these three categories that can please God, we are invited to please God. So check out verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Verse 3, once again, um, Paul comes back to encourage. He encourages us by saying, hey, guess what? I know what the will of God is. I don't know how many of you have probably asked that question in your life multiple, multiple times. God, just show me your will. Just show me your will. Tell me what to do. Tell me what you want me to do. Hey, you can sum up that entire question every single time under this, your sanctification. What God wants above all else is for you to be like him, for you to know him, to walk with him, to understand him, to trust him. Ultimately, we move one day in heaven, we are sanctified. Right now, we are moving in that direction. 
The will of God is that everything we do takes a step in the direction of becoming more like Jesus. And where does he start when he says, well, what does that look like? He starts with sexuality. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. I don't know about you, but when I, I read about sexual immorality and the struggles that they're having, then my, immediately, my immediate assumption is to say that, well, I mean, they don't know how bad it is today, right? And Christians have been doing that for centuries, right? We always look back and we go, I mean, that was easier then. It's super hard today. But the reality is it's no different today than it was then. If anything, I think we, don't give, we give them, uh, don't give them enough credit for the culture in which they were living in. What Paul is calling them to here, I believe is in a little bit of a different way, but in some ways a more challenging way, what he's calling them out of than what you and I are living in today. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on the first second Thessalonians gives us a picture of just what was socially acceptable with, around sexuality. I think this is just mind-blowing. A man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. That wasn't like in a corner. That was just like, hey, this is the way we operate. This is our culture. So in that context, Paul's writing, and what does he say? He says, abstain from sexual immorality, which is anything outside of the design in which God has given sex. You see, pleasure is not found with freedom from restriction, but recognition of the design. You see, God's commandments concerning sex or impurity, to abstain from sexual immorality, are not for the purpose of robbing people of joy, but rather of protecting them so that they might not lose their joy. Wait, rules? God's rules are given in such a way that is to protect us, not hurt us? Think about it, of um, the, just the rule, thou shalt not commit adultery, builds a wall around marriage that makes the relationship not a prison, but a safe and beautiful garden. I love this when God says, hey, here's a gift. And actually, not just a gift, here's a gift and the instructions on how you are to use it to best steward the gift I'm giving you. And then in our culture, we go, eh, I mean, that's, I think it's a little old fashioned. I don't think you need that. This came to light this, this week uh, for me around this idea of sexual immorality. So some of you may know or heard of Chuck Colson back in the day and his organization, Breakpoint. And they've got a, a podcast that comes out weekly and kind of actually daily with different tidbits about our culture and what the Bible has to say about our faith, how our faith should impact culture. And just this week, as I'm reading this, they talk about this idea. These studies have come out to say, hey, this culture that we live in around our sexuality, specifically premarital sex, says, hey, you wouldn't buy a car without driving it. Why would you marry someone without having sex with them and at a minimum living with them? Like that just makes sense, right? And everyone nods their head and go, well, yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. Well, guess what? God's word says that doesn't make sense. But our culture says, no, it does make sense. Well, the studies that have come out that they're highlighting this week, I love this, point to once again, hey, guess what? The designer actually knows how things work. It says, according to one of the series of studies using national data sets like the General uh, Social Survey, the lowest divorce rates in early marriage are found among married couples who have only had sex with each other. Now, whose idea was that? I think that's, that's actually what God says, right? Where sex is designed and what it was created and where it is intended to stay. It goes on and said, in their new survey of the available data, 
they looked at over 3,700 adults across the country. They found that the sexually inexperienced, defined as those who have only had one partner, reported the highest overall levels of relationship satisfaction, relationship stability, and sexual satisfaction. The, the researchers also found that it makes little difference whether for the rest prior experience involved committed partners or just having casual sex, both had negative effects on future marriage. Again and again and again, God's word is revealed to be true. And a culture that says, no, that doesn't, that, that's, that's robbing you of joy. The research, the studies, the experience, the reality actually says, hey, guess what? God's way is best. God's way is for you. God's way is designed to give you life, not take away life. And so in this idea of sexual immorality, when he's pointing here and he's saying, hey, guess what? Live a life that pleases God in your sex life, with your sexuality. So the culture is doing whatever they want to do and any, curt any curtailing of their freedom or your freedom is, should be seen as wrong, should be seen as a robbing you of what you deserve. Paul's saying, hey, guess what? You see, God has this design and God has this way and following him is always best. Often it can be easy to think that God's calling us to purity and holiness it involves us laboring with all our strength, wondering if possibly I can ever get there, if I can ever win, if I can ever do away with this temptation, if I can ever right this wrong, this mistake that was made in the past. But Paul again and again comes back to this idea. Hey, your calling is sure. He who has called you is faithful. He can do it. A couple years ago, I participated in a race called a Tough Mudder. Anybody ever done Tough Mudder? It's a really stupid idea where you pay for others to torture you. So it's like six, eight miles of running, and then there's obstacles and things you do. And, but that wasn't the hardest part. Like we were, we were prepared for the obstacles, but what I didn't know would be so incredibly hard was running that far in mud. Because what I didn't realize is that when you run in the neighborhood and when you run on a trail, then the footing is sure. But when you run on mud, it takes all the energy and focus that you have to just take the next step, to just not fall. So thinking about that this week when it comes to this idea of avoid sexual immorality. Sometimes I think it's, it means, ah, it's me straining with everything I have, wondering if my next step might be the last. But we don't have a God we're appeasing. We don't have a God that we're trying to earn his favor. We have a God who is cheering us on, helping us along, whose spirit dwells in us, who's saying, you can do this and you will do this. My will for you is your sanctification. One day you will be with me face to face and you will be holy. Therefore, keep walking. Keep seeking to please me. Not appease me, but to please me. See, this shifts the focus of our lives from pleasing God to our own pleasure when we see his gifts as ours to be used however we want. And when I'm focused on my happiness and my pleasure, I'm certainly more than likely have shifted away from a pursuit of holiness and God's best. 
So when it comes to our sexuality, there's a ton here. And we could spend a week, couple weeks diving into what it looks like to flee sexual immorality, what it looks like to honor God with our bodies. But can I leave it simply at this this morning? When it comes to what you're watching, what you're talking about, what you're listening to, what you're engaging in, just ask a simple question this week. God, does this please you? And I'm guessing that simple question will make it really hard to justify, to rationalize, to explain why this somehow is okay. Because I think when we put it before God and we go, God, does this please you? I think we can see very clearly whether it does or doesn't. And then in that moment, what's Paul's invitation? Just take the next right step. Because in the midst of this, in the midst of sexual immorality, in the midst of any type of sin, a God we're seeking to appease is a God that we are ashamed of, we're embarrassed of, we're condemned by. But that's not our God. Our God says there is now, therefore, now no condemnation. Why? Because you're not appeasing me. I have, Jesus has paid the price. The payment has been appeased. Therefore, I want you simply to walk in a way that is pleasing to me. So when I fall down, the next thing God's asking me to do is to get up and simply take the next step towards him. My union is secure. My communion has been broken because of choices I've made in ways I've walked that have been displeasing to God. Therefore, simply to get up and take the next step in his direction. So if Paul, in looking at how what it looks like to please God, points to the area of sexuality, he then moves on in verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, love this. Paul shifts in. He goes, hey, so you're, once again, I'm cheering you on because you're loving well. Everyone knows about your love. Everyone's heard about your love. But what I want you to do, I want you to keep doing it more and more. You haven't reached this place of, of achievement. You haven't reached this place of arrival. It's what you are doing. And I want you to continue doing it. But what does he say? We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you. Apparently, in the, within the church, there were people that were idle. There are people who had the ability to work, but were choosing not to work. And when you don't work, the result is you then place yourself as being dependent on somebody else. And Paul's saying, hey, this idea of loving each other, you are loving each other. And that's awesome. But guess what? When you choose not to work, when you choose to make somebody else care for you, guess what? That's not loving. If you want to love, there are practical implications of loving. There's a practical outworking of this. That means you go to work. You earn your pay. You earn your way. And guess what? Then a part of your loving is not just being kind to those and loving those around you, but you're actually able to care for those around you. you the reverse, right? I'm not dependent on anyone. I'm actually able to care for someone else. So here, when it comes to a life that pleases God, Paul is saying, hey, would you please God in the everyday, ordinary way in which you are living? One of the greatest disservices to the message of the gospel is people who call themselves Christians. And yet within your business, within the working space, are the least dependable. People are going, I mean, I can't trust you, but this whole Christian thing, I think you're supposed to be trustworthy. And I, you're not a hard worker. And what if it, in our workplaces, where we spend the majority of our time in a given week, 
we live our lives in such a way that pleases God. Guess what? As we please God, as we live, as we are honest, as we work hard, as we love others, the message of the gospel only becomes more appealing to those around us. So think about it. Paul has talked about sex and he's talked about work and this ordinary nature of life. Two things that he gave us where? At creation. He gave us sex and he gave us work and they were good. And the temptation when it comes to sex and it comes to work is to take something that is good and to make it about us. Which we move to selfishness. My pleasure, what I desire. Instead, what Paul's pointing to, a life that pleases God takes God's gift and says, this is God's gift to me, not just for me, but for the benefit of others. So Paul's encouragement is to move from selfishness to unselfishness and from idleness to growth. In this last, last section, he points to an eternal hope. One of the ways we please God with our lives is by representing living with a hope that is different than those around us. And verse 13, it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Maybe 17. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The beginning, you can, you can imagine as the church is forming, there's this idea of like, well, Jesus came and he died. He rose from the dead and he went to heaven and he's coming back soon, right? I don't know about you, but soon means soon, like now. And there's this prevailing thought within the churches that some are going, well, what happens when somebody dies? Like that wasn't part of the plan. Like we would basically be here and Jesus would come back. Well, Paul's addressing that at the beginning of this chapter. He said, hey, you can grieve. A life that pleases God recognizes that there are things to grieve in this world. But you do not grieve the same way the rest of the world grieves. You do not grieve without hope. Our lives, lives that please God, will be anchored by an unwavering hope. Not, not, a, not a hope that says, oh, everything is awesome. Like, I love this. God's ways, are, God's ways are always best. I can feel that every moment. No. He says, you will grieve. But just grieve differently. Do not grieve like those without hope. The Psalms are full of laments. A life that pleases God is not a life that puts up a, <coughs> excuse me, a stone face. It's a life that's honest. It's a life that says, I lost a job. God, I don't know what to do. I lost a loved one. I don't know how to reconcile this with your goodness. I lost you fill in the blank. Paul says loss is real, pain is real, but the hope we have is greater. Therefore, we get the opportunity to please God with how we grieve. See, central to all of this is the truth that you and I are invited to live lives anchored in pleasing, not appeasing God. And that's my invitation this morning. For us to walk out of here, for us this week to keep this in front of me, Am I living to please or am I living to appease? 
Because I think there's a big difference. In this, uh, this area of the country, there's a dining establishment where um, there's a certain saying that's given to you um, that, kind of, that centers around like pleasure. You know what that saying is? Like uh, if you go to Chick-fil-A and they give you your, uh, your sweet tea and you say thank you and they go what? It's my pleasure. True Kathy um, didn't come up with that. True Kathy actually stole that. Um, he was visiting an establishment that you and I probably don't frequent quite as frequently. It was the Ritz-Carlton. Um, and he was so uh, impressed by the workers there saying, it's my pleasure that he came back and literally over years of encouraging and encouraging and encouraging, made that a part of the culture at Chick-fil-A, which it became expected, right? Where you come in and somebody does, you say thank you and you just kind of lean forward like, here it comes. Yep, my pleasure, right? And now right, we're, at, we're at Burger King and McDonald's, right? And the lady says, uh, my pleasure. And you're like, uh-uh, <laughs> that's not your line. <laughs> Guess true, Kathy may have stolen it from the Ritz-Carlton. But the first person to say my pleasure was actually God. You see, in Hebrews chapter um, 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy or the pleasure set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As you and I think about living a life that pleases God, one of the ways that we please God is by simply saying, thank you, by recognizing what he's done, by remembering his love for us. In just a couple minutes, we're gonna get to do that collectively as a faith family as we get to go and take communion. And the body that was broken and the blood that was poured out, we celebrate as believers saying, yes, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you say thank you, what do you think Jesus' response is? I think he's saying, my pleasure. It wasn't easy, but I would have done nothing less. It was with my joy and my greatest pleasure to go to the cross for you. So when we are invited and given the choice, do I want to live a life that pleases God? or a life that appeases God, Jesus says loudly, I've already done it. I've done it. The debt's been paid. Therefore, the only option left is to please. And guess what? It's not out of guilt. It's not out of um, obligation. It's out of a response of love because of what I've done for you. So therefore, as believers, it is our pleasure to bring pleasure to the face of our God by simply living a life that pleases God. So this week, can I encourage you to say, God, don't let me be trapped into a life of appeasing you. Let me be welcomed into this overwhelming invitation of living a life that is pleasing to you. My prayer for you and for me is that we would be totally liberated from the fear of appeasing and completely consumed with the joy of pleasing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for the joy that was before you as you went to the cross. The pleasure that you had in purchasing us back, of redeeming what was lost, of reclaiming what was yours. And God, as a result, we stand here 
an incredible debt of gratitude. And the only response that we find in Scripture is to live a life pleasing to you. To live our lives in such a way that honor you, that take the gifts you have given and steward them correctly in such a way that pleases you. So God, this morning, even in this space right now, God, there's a lot of us that are in places that are not pleasing to you. It may be big or it may be small. I pray that you would allow us to simply come before a God who paid it all. God, to ask for forgiveness and then walk in freedom, walk in joy as we get to open your word, read your word, respond to your word and live a life that is pleasing to you. So God, would you accept these songs as an offering of praise to you out of our gratitude for who you are and what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.